0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So as I said at the beginning of the service, we're jumping into our Little Brother Big God series, uh, a little behind, so... Beacon and New Pulse, we're finishing up another series, and so we're, we're going to just kind of put it together. And that means that we're going to be looking at a big chunk of Scripture, uh, but we will kind of just get the, the 30,000 foot view to give us a bigger sense of not just the life of Joseph, but, but as we'll see, also how this points us uh, to the gospel. So, one of the things that I want to do here as we begin uh, is to Ask this question How do we read the Old Testament? We've done a number of things in the Old Testament since I've been here. We've been in the prophets, we looked at Isaiah, we looked at Job for a little bit. Um, but I want to just articulate this clearly. When we think about the Old Testament, what is our lens? And as you can see from this picture, the lens is the cross. How do we interpret, read, consider the Old Testament? And how do we bring them together so that they're not just random stories that that we somehow land on Jesus when we get to the New Testament, right? The whole of scripture is about Jesus. That's what we read from Jesus himself in Luke 24. And if you're not familiar with that, that's the story of of Christ after his resurrection, before his ascension on the road to Emmaus, on the road to this village uh, of Emmaus and catching up with these two gentlemen. We have one name is Cleopas. And they're walking along, uh, and he draws near to them, and he says, uh, he, uh, they, they, They're complaining, and they're grieving, really. And he says, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood and looked sadly, and then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem to not know what all these things that have happened here are about in these days? And he said, What things? <laughs> so Jesus is inquiring. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. So clearly they don't recognize him. A man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, yes. And beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus responds this way. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself." And so Jesus is saying, all of Scripture, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, is about me. It centers on me. And so that is the interpretive lens that we want to think about when we read any part of Scripture, Joseph's life being no exception. Jesus teaches this, as we can see. And so when we read the Old Testament, it's about Christ. Ultimately, Joseph, then, is not the main character of our story, Okay, you're a little... There we go. Trying to get you to plug in. Okay. Coffee. Maybe you need some. So Jesus is the center story. So, so that's kind of the, the lens, the, the, the presupposition that I want us to consider as we look at the Old Testament. We want to see a continuity, a thread that is Christological to say that focuses on Christ and so with that, we can jump into our look at Joseph, and we're going to kind of play a little catch-up here, and so we're just going to get the big picture of 37, and then today we're looking at 39, but I also want to touch on 38, and, and there's an interesting thing that happens there, but we'll just get to that in a second. Let me just begin by saying something here. When we jump into chapter 37, now Jacob is, or excuse me, Joseph is first mentioned back in 30 when God uh, allows uh, Rebekah to have children Uh, Her sister Leah has children with Jacob, uh, but she doesn't and then eventually does have, and and Joseph is her firstborn. But this is where we really begin to learn about Joseph starting in 37, and it opens this way. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Jacob is Joseph's father, and it says this, these are the generations of Jacob. Jacob. That's verse 2 of chapter 37. These are the generations of Jacob. The Hebrew word is toledo, and all that really means is we're looking at the descendants, the line, and the activity of Jacob. And so 37 really to the end of Genesis is largely about Joseph, but not entirely, which is why 38 is what it is. Chapter 38 really doesn't have anything to do with Joseph, at least on the surface, but we need to recognize that as we just sort of give a glance at that and consider that before we jump to 39. So we get Joseph in 37, and then we get Joseph in 39, and 38 is a little bit different. So what do we get of Joseph when we get to 39? Well, this is where Joseph, he's 17 years old. He's a, he's a young man, still kind of a boy. He's pasturing in the field, and this is what it says. He was a boy with the sons of Bildah and Zephila, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. I just want you to get that, right? Joseph is the good kid who's telling on his bad brothers. That's what he's doing. He brings a bad report to them. Now Israel, which is another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. So I know that we're supposed to love all our children equally, but apparently Jacob didn't. He loved Joseph more, and Scripture tells us that. Wow, that's challenging to think about. But he loved him so much that he made him a robe of many colors, or you might say, some translations actually say, of long sleeves. So this robe is a sign, a a testament of his love for him. And clothing and Jacob have an interesting relationship, or excuse me, clothing and Joseph, I should say. Clothing and Joseph has an interesting relationship, as we'll see. So, he's got this robe. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So, there's sibling rivalry, and it's here. Joseph had a dream. Now, this is the thrust of chapter 37. Joseph has dreams, too. He tells his brother the dreams, and they hate him even more. He's faithful to the dream that God gives him, two dreams, and it doesn't work out well for him. And I I want you to keep that in mind as you think about this. Faithfulness to God does not equate to smooth and easy circumstances. Joseph's life is a demonstration of this. He's faithful, and we're going to see that today. They hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheave arose and stood aright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheave. Now, before I read the brothers' reaction, I wonder, could you take a stab at what their reaction was? I am going to be upright, and you will all bow to me, is what he says. God said so. They're not happy with that, Not surprisingly. And so uh, they have this dream, and he says, uh, his brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are, we indeed to, to, are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. And then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars, so he being the twelfth, right? Tribes of Israel. The sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. So his father rebukes him, but in the back of his mind, his father is considering these words reminds me a little bit of Mary early on in the life of Jesus. She contemplates and considers the words. And we want to think about where Christ is. We don't want to overdo it, but we want to think about where we see imagery and thoughts about Christ. So we are introduced to Joseph here. He's the the favorite son, as it were, he has this robe as a sign of the father's love for him. He has two dreams that put him further at, uh, at enmity or odds with his brothers. And so his brothers now plot to remedy their hatred or to satisfy it, I should say. His brothers were to pasture their father's flock at Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are you, are you not... Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, here I am. So he said to him, go now and see that it is well with your brothers in the flock and bring me word. And so he sent him to the valley of Hebron and to Shechem. And he, and he found a man there wandering the fields. And, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And he said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dauphin. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotham. So they're far away now. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. You can hear the sarcasm in that. Here comes the dreamer, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say the fierce animal had devoured him. And we, will see, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben, which is another one of his brothers, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood, throw him into these, this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand in him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben wants to rescue him. Now he's got a plan, maybe to gain favor with his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And there's a little imagery here of Christ as well, right? Jesus is unjustly charged and stripped before he is punished. It's subtle, and I don't want you to overthink it, but there is some imagery here. And after they throw him in a pit, they sit down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming to Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and uh, uh, myrrh, and on their way to carrying it down to Egypt. And Judah, another brother, said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And Midianites, that's the Ishmaelites, the same people. The traders passed by. They drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And we'll pick that up when we get to 39. Reuben returns to the pit. He's got a plan to rescue him. Remember that? And Joseph, he's not in the pit. What does Reuben do? He tears his clothes. He's grieving here. And he returns to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the the robe in the blood. That should sound familiar too, right? And they sent the robe of many colors uh, colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloths on his loins and mourned for many days for his son. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So what we kind of have here is a deceptive plot Uh, to cover uh, their hatred of their brother and what they did, and they stage his death, right? So they demonstrate with his robe that's covered in blood, look, he's died, but he's not actually dead. Does that sound somewhat familiar? Right? Somewhat familiar, but we want to see the subtlety of that. He's not dead. He's actually in Egypt, So, Joseph, for his faithfulness to God, is sold as a slave. That's what his faithfulness gets him. And now, the next time we hear about Joseph, picks up in Egypt in 39. But let's just take a few moments to look at chapter 38. Because remember, this is the sort of the the descendants, the generations of Jacob, of which Judah is one. And Judah is the line from which Jesus comes. Right of the 12 tribes, Judah is the line from which Jesus comes. We talked about that a little bit ago when we said that the, the Levites were the priests and when we're looking at Hebrews, but Judas doesn't come from that line. He comes from the line of Judah. Therefore, he comes from the higher priest, right? the, the line of Melchizedek. Jesus comes from Judah. So there's this story that's inserted here in chapter 38 and my uh, heading on my Bible, maybe you have one, it says Judah and Tamar. Now, when you get to chapter 39, this is the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And if you're familiar with it, you know that's a story that elevates Joseph as faithful and he resists sexual temptation and flees from the wife. But what we have here in Judah and Tamar is sort of a foil for that in one sense because this is exactly the opposite. Judah does not demonstrate faithfulness. He's not good here. He kind of blows it. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. So he departs from his brothers, turns aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hera. This is his friend. Then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. So right away, we have Judah mingling with a people that God says don't mingle with, right? He took her, and he went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and his name was Onan, and yet again bore a son, and his name was Shelah. So, So Judah goes down, meets this Canaanite woman, takes her as his wife, has three sons with her. And then Judah took so Judah took a wife for his firstborn son. So Judah finds a wife for his firstborn son, and her name was Tamar. So here's Judah and Tamar. So he's got three sons. He finds a wife for his firstborn son in due time when he grows up. But Er, Judah's firstborn, he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And so Judah says to his second son, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law, which is to raise offspring for him. Well, he doesn't want to do that, and he finds some ways to avoid doing that, and you can read that on your own. I will leave it at that. And he, too, is wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord kills him. He takes him. Okay, not a good track record for Judah. Then Judah says to Tamar, he says, wait, and when my third son grows up, I will give you to him in marriage. So she goes to her father-in-law's house and she waits. She remains a widow in her father-in-law's house until Shelah grows up. Shelah grows up. But uh, Judah feared that her son, his son, would die. <laughs> because the first two did. So he was afraid of that. So he goes to the house. And now, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shuna's daughter, dies. So Judah. His wife now dies, and I know it's a lot to follow, but just we'll just get the big picture. He, when Judah was comforted, he went up to Tamar to his to his sheep shears, to his friend uh, and to his friend the Elamite Herma, right. And when Tamar was told your father-in-law is going to go up to Timnah to shear his sheep, well, she she schemes a plan here, and she takes off her widow's garments covers herself with a veil and wraps herself up and sat at the entrance of Emna which is one of the uh, one is on the road to Timna for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage and when Judah saw her he thought she was a prostitute for she had her face covered he turned to her at the roadside and said uh, come let me come into you for for he did not know that it was his daughter-in-law so Regardless of who she was, he was sinful and wrong, but it makes it even weirder and stranger that it becomes his daughter-in-law. So, Judah's in a bad way here. But anyway, he, he does this and he's with her and she, he says, well, what will you give me? And he says, I'll give you a young goat. And she says, well, you need to give me something right now. And she says, well, give me your signet ring and your, your, your cord and your staff and that's kind of the equivalent of saying, well, how about if you give me your wallet, your license, and your keys, or your cell phone, your keys, it's the things that are going to definitively identify you, right? You can't get away with it, right? You know who that is. And he says, okay, and he gives it to her. And uh, so he goes back afterwards. He makes good on his word. He sends his friend with the young goat to go find her. And there, the people are like, there, there is no cult prostitute, right, at the sacred temple. That's what that, that, would, that would probably be. She's not here. So he goes back and reports to her and says, well, I couldn't find her. And he says, well, just let her keep her things because if I, if I go looking for her any harder, I'm going to become a laughingstock. They're going to laugh at me. So he just tries to let it go and hopes that nothing happens. Well, that doesn't work out. No great surprise there. About three months pass, enough time for Tamar to now be showing she's pregnant And it's told to to Judah, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral, which means immoral via prostitution. Moreover, she's pregnant by that. And Judah, in all his compassion, says, Bring her out and let her be burned. Wow. Okay. And she was brought out, and she sent word to her father-in-law and said to him, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. Please identify these things, the signet and the cord and the staff. Whoops for Judah. <laughs> not a good moment for Judah right there. Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I have not given her to my son Shayla. And He did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her room, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife tied a scarlet thread around it saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand in, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself, therefore... His name is called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, why does this matter, and why is this inserted in this sort of life of Joseph? Well, again, there's this foil of this wicked sexual behavior compared to what we're going to see in chapter 39. But we also see something rather significant. Not just Judah as of the line of Christ, but these names as well, Perez. In fact, Perez is in the genealogy of Ruth, and in the opening uh, words of God, the Gospel of Matthew, Tamar and Perez are in the genealogical line of Christ. And so, it's, here's what I want you to see. Not only does Judah blow it here really badly, but we also see the line of Jesus through this. Now, what else does that tell us that's of great significance? And by the way, I think a great encouragement. It tells us that Jesus' line is anything but ethnically pure I think that should be a bit of an encouragement for us it's not like they all did it perfectly so that Jesus could have a pure bloodline he has a pure bloodline because he's born of the Holy Spirit the Virgin Mary but his genealogical line isn't pure it should be a bit of an encouragement to us I think it is to recognize that he's pure let me make sure we're clear about that he is pure. But the line is not perfect, and that's an encouragement for us. So, we also have this foil, and that takes us to 39, and we're, we're going to just jump in and look at it. Here's, here, we're just going to walk through the verses in chapter 39. Now, Joseph had been br- brought down to Egypt, so here's the reminder. This picks up from where 37 left off, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, uh, had brought him... Uh, fr- uh, from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. He bought him. He's a slave. So he's faithful to God, and his brothers hate him and try to kill him and plot against him, and he's sold into slavery. And he's sold into slavery by a man with some importance, we're told that. He's brought to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian. So we have details here about who he is. He's important. But here's what I want you to see as we get to verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And by the way, that's a typo on my part. That should be all capitals, right? That's the covenant name God. The Lord was with Joseph. Here's one of the interesting things that you don't see in chapter 37. Joseph is faithful. He tells the dreams to his brother. He, He endures this punishment. But we're never told about God's presence with Joseph. But here it's made abundantly clear. The Lord was with Joseph. This is why, by the way, we read from Matthew. Because Jesus is called what? Emmanuel, God with us. And so this language here, particularly with the all capital L-O-R-D, Lord, the covenantal name, tells us that this is not just a warm feeling of comfort and assurance that Joseph has because he senses God's presence. This has covenantal uh, implications. This is the fact that God determines to be with Joseph as representative of his people. This is language that goes throughout Scripture, by the way. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's all throughout Scripture. So it has covenantal theological significance, this language. The Lord was with Joseph. And by the way, just pause for a moment and ask yourself this question. How do you measure the Lord's presence with you? I mean, the default for most of us is to look at our circumstances. And when they're not going well... We tend to think God's not with us or God's punishing us. Definitely not the case for Joseph. Definitely not the case for Paul. The faithfulness of those men has nothing to do with their circumstances. Their circumstances say quite the opposite. Paul says in the book of Acts that uh, the spirit has told me that in every city I go in there will be nothing but prison and persecution. That's anything but comfortable. Quite the opposite. So how do you measure that? How do you determine that? It's a subjective question for you to think about, but the the objective answer is because the Scripture teaches us that if I belong to Christ, the indwelling Spirit is in me, and He is, in fact, with me. He is my God, and I belong to His people. And that truth and that assurance is what gives you comfort in the midst of and despite many other circumstances. The Lord was with Joseph, verse 2, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Well, okay, now things seem to be making sense. My brothers had a bad plan for me, but now I'm, uh, I'm in charge of a really important person in Egypt. I, the, the Lord seems to be working here. Okay, I'm working my way back up. Seems like things are going well. So Joseph found favor in his sight. Now from that time, they made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house. For Joseph's sake. By the way, that should remind us of Abraham. Faithfulness of God to do what? Abraham was to be what? A blessing to who? The nations. Even Egypt. And so, the demonstration to the Egyptians that God is with his people comes through Joseph, not just in blessing Joseph, but also those, the things that he does. And so for Joseph's sake, the Egyptian's house is blessed as well. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. That's a pretty comfortable life. He's in charge of all kinds of things, and he doesn't have to worry about any of them, but where are his next meals coming from? What am I going to eat today? That's... That's a little too comfortable for a person of his status. But nonetheless, that's what we have. Let's move on. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And this is a word that we see in the, uh, in the um, Hebrew, uh, a good bit handsome. It actually, it has an almost negative context. It means I want to put my hands on it, literally. Kind to get the idea there. Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. And after after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So I want you to see something here. Long before Moses and the writing out of the Ten Commandments, Joseph, merely as an image bearer and as a follower of God, and the Lord being with him, clearly understands the the, the idea that they are to love God and to love their neighbor Joseph is living it out, and this verse kind of gives us that sense. But long before thou shalt not commit adultery comes along, Joseph innately knows because he is an image bearer, and he knows that this is an offense to the created order to do such a thing. He sees it as wicked. By the way, it's interesting to note here that the Egyptians that are not Christians, are not Jewish, they don't follow the one true God, also have marriage, which is a testament to the natural created order. Even these people that have no relationship with God understand something as fundamental to the natural created order as marriage. And they get married. And there's an innate sense that this is wicked to break that covenant. They innately know it. You're his wife. It's innate, he says. How can I do such a thing? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? But also against Potiphar, my neighbor, right? As it were. And so he has this great sense. And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. She is persistent nonetheless. And over time, sometimes our defenses weaken, do they not? What do we see coming up? One day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house. I think Potiphar's wife's up to no good. I think she sent the men off, she gave them a day off. Why don't you guys go home early? I got a plan. She caught him by his garment. More clothing problems for Joseph and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, just get, as soon as she saw that, just imagine this for a moment. There's no one in the house and she's there holding the garment. I mean, she is as guilty as it gets, right? Just picture that, right? There's nobody around though. So she plots immediately. And I want you to see this. She plots right away. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and it fled out of the house, he did the right thing. She called to the men of her house and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew. By the way, who's he? Potiphar. I'll blame my husband for this disaster. It's his fault. And by the way, he didn't bring Joseph, a man of reputation and respect, he brought a Hebrew. Pick, pick that up. That's intentional, derogatory language. He brought a Hebrew. It's prejudice. And what did he come to do? Not to entice her in any way, to mock us. Just pay attention to all of that. The first thing she says is he came to laugh at us. So he wants to, she wants to bring the servants who were not in the house, but apparently close by, in on the, he, she wants them to be angry. At Joseph, she wants to free herself from that guilt. He came to laugh at us, that Hebrew. You see that? Like she's really, it's a slippery slope. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard it, that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So she's setting up his guilt before he even gets a chance to speak of his innocence. Do we ever see that in our culture? We can thank social media for that. Most of the time, popular or well-known cases are tried in the court of popular opinion before they even get to the courtroom. And that's what she's trying to do here. I want Joseph to be guilty before he even gets in front of my husband. Guilty. So he fled from the house. Now watch what happens next. She's not done plotting. She takes that garment and lays it beside her until her master came home. More clothing problems for Joseph. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant, not Joseph, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us, he came in to laugh at me. As soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. She is setting him up and covering her tracks, as it were, plotting against Joseph. By the way, did not the brothers do the same thing? They plotted against him. They covered their story. They made it look like nothing bad. They didn't do anything bad, but this terrible thing happened to Joseph. He's died, and yet he's not dead. And now she's doing the same thing. He is unjustly convicted of guilt. That, too, is true of Jesus. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way that your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, understandably. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Now, let me just insert an assumption here, just just for thought. Potiphar is a man of great importance, in the Egyptian kingdom. If he actually 100% believed that this slave had attempted to advance against his wife in his absence, what would happen to Joseph? He'd be dead, dead and gone, which implies that Potiphar probably doesn't exactly trust his wife. That's why she doesn't just say, he tried to lie with me. They laughed at us, right? And he laughed at me. She includes that in there. Now, I don't know that, but it seems odd. And when I say odd, what I really mean is it seems providential that this man that should have died doesn't die, but instead gets thrown into prison, So you're watching this up and down thing happening in Joseph's life. I was faithful to God. I told my brothers the the dreams, and my father rebukes me, and my my brothers uh, throw me into a pit, and then they stage my death and sell me as a slave. But then things started to get better because I get into Potiphar's house, and he sees that the Lord's with me, and it starts to go good. I'm in charge of everything, and now I'm in prison. What? See, the roller coaster ride. By the way, does that kind of feel like your life sometimes? Sometimes you feel like things are going really well and God's with me and then something goes really bad and then maybe God's not with me. But the Lord is with Joseph. By the way, he's in prison and what do we get in the next verse? But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph seems to find favor in these, these people of importance in the Egyptian kingdom. keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And he did and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So we have this theme of the Lord being with him throughout that. But let's let's just uh, let's let's walk through this and, and and make a couple of of connections here as we sort of come to the end. Chapter thirty-seven gives us um, this. We want to see the big picture of the gospel. And the intent of the gospel, not so much specifically a reflection of Christ, but a reflection of the need for Christ as well, right? Because Genesis 3.15 introduces the gospel, but what else does it introduce? It introduces enmity. Enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that enmity comes in Cain and Abel, and it comes in Ishmael and Isaac, and it comes in Esau and Jacob, and it comes with Joseph. Joseph. And his brothers, and that pattern continues, and we see that all the time. That is the need for the gospel. Joseph is sovereign. He's sovereignly ordained by God to lead his brothers, to shepherd them, and their response is one of envy and injustice. It's like Jesus endured when declaring his sovereignly ordained office as shepherd. When he walked in it, he was unjustly uh, treated and uh, punished and killed. When we get to chapter 38, we have Judas' sexual immorality. That's a foil to Joseph's faithfulness, right? It's a, a contrast for us to see that in, but it also provides us with key people in the line of Christ. And again, if you want to see that specifically, you can read the end of 38 and see Perez, and we can see Tamar uh, in 38, and we can read in Ruth chapter 4, we see the genealogy, and in Matthew 1, we see this, these names in the genealogy. So we're, we're seeing this line of Christ unfold in redemptive history. And then when we get to 39, the Lord is with Joseph, despite his continued circumstances seeming to say otherwise. And so I I ask the question again as we come to the end of our time here, how do you see that? How do you measure Christ with you? The Lord is with Joseph. How do you determine that? Now, what I'm trying to get you to see is and just to identify is, I have a way of sort of subjectively, emotionally making that determination, which never proves good for me. Because it usually makes me respond in ways that are not biblical. Like my, I, the, my emotions and my circumstances get the better of me. And that would certainly be true of Joseph if he allowed that to happen, because his circumstances were quite dire at times. Again, see that roller coaster, right? He's faithful to God by sharing his vision, his dream. I mean, his dream's about his brothers, and he shares it with his brothers, and they don't respond so well. In fact, they try to put him to death. And then when that doesn't work, they sell him as a slave. Not exactly the response he would think of. Then it seems to go well for him, and then the rug gets pulled out from under him, and he's in prison. But the Lord was with him. And that, that distinction that said at the beginning of chapter 39 in the, and, and at the end of 39, that, that benchmark that those bookends, that, that chapter to let us know that, that despite all these things, the Lord is with him. What's the Lord doing for Joseph? We see this weird roller coaster, right? What's happening? Well, ultimately, he's raising him up to have increased political power in the kingdom of Egypt to do what? what we're going to see later on is to do what? Is to provide for the nations in a time of great famine. That, again, is fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, you will be a blessing to the nations. And his own people, by the way, because his own people are going to come back and see that he wasn't dead, that he's alive, and they get grain and, and, and from him, and they're fed, but they're also encouraged as they know that their brother is alive, and Jacob knows that his son is alive. And so we want to see all of that as we consider um, this, these two, uh, well, three, past, uh, three chapters as we look at the life of Joseph. So I know I, I gave you a whole lot in week one of our series, but I want to kind of catch you up. And then, uh, of course, as always, I'm available uh, to discuss that. But we're going to come to the table now, and we're going to pray. And this, too, is a reminder of what Christ has done for us. His blood was shed unto death, actually, he was brought back to life. As Paul says in Romans 4, he died for our transgressions, but he was raised for our justification. And we need both, and they are both of central importance to us as believers. So as the elements are passed out, I want to encourage you to to take just a few moments and think through and reflect on, how do I see Christ in the life of Joseph? And Joseph's life is not just a random story, and we don't want to just look at Joseph with Potiphar and say, Joseph was the way we want to be. He was, he was faithful, and that he is that. But we want to see beyond that and see Christ in that. We want to see God's provision in that. We want to see that the Lord was with Joseph and is with us even despite our circumstances. No matter what they would be, the Lord is with you. If you belong to him, then he is with you no matter how bad it gets. In fact, he died to be with you. And before he ascends to heaven what does he say to his disciples and to us i am with you always even to the end of the age and he fulfills that promise by gifting us with his indwelling holy spirit that binds us to christ as he sits at the right hand of the father in heaven somebody say amen to that we are bound to christ in heaven who as we spent the last couple weeks talking about the lights and loves us from heaven and that, that union with Christ through His Spirit. Remember we talked last week is this beautiful picture of a husband to his bride. And we have the privilege of hearing the words of love of Christ through the Spirit and bringing our prayers and needs to Him through the Spirit, that, that lifeline that is the indwelling Spirit in us, assurance of that truth. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.